BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, August 22nd, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show at iTunes, on Stitcher, or on any other podcasting app. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, who bring the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, and many other topics, The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming, or on DVD and CD. But the best part is is that you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework, exams, or even putting on anything other than your pajamas. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of one of its courses. This is the course entitled Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior by Professor Mark Leary. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. So before we get any deeper into this episode, I just want to warn people that we are going to be talking about sexual assault and sexual harassment on today's show. There's been some debate in recent years as to the cause of the disproportionate number of women in senior positions in the fields of science, technology, engineering, and math. And there have been quite a few good studies, some showing that there is, in fact, a gender bias against women when they apply for tenure-track jobs, for example. Here, I'm remembering a study in which two fake applicants, you know, let's call them Jack and Jane, were up for the same jobs or promotions and had exactly the same resumes, but Jack was more likely to get hired or promoted even when the decision was made by female professors. But there are also studies that show that women apply for fewer grants Uh, But when they do apply, they tend to have the same success rate as men. So the question of whether the gender gap is a result of systemic discrimination against women or a choice by women to pursue other things aside from STEM careers remains an open one for many of us. But in July, a paper published in PLOS One shocked the scientific community. Anthropologists Kate Clancy, Robin Nelson, Julian Rutherford, and evolutionary biologist Katie Hind surveyed 666 trainees in disciplines that involve fieldwork. And to their great amazement, about 70% of women who responded witnessed or were victims of sexual harassment or assault while in the field. These numbers are staggering. And clearly, there are stories here that need to be heard and policies that need to be put in place to fix the problem. 
And when I asked Kate what motivated her to survey women who have worked in the field, she told me the story. A couple of years ago, I was out giving a talk, a women in science talk at another campus, and I happened to meet up with an old friend, and she wasn't finishing up her dissertation, and I couldn't figure out why. Um, and so, you know, being kind of heartless and thinking I was doing her a good turn by being hard, I was like, what is actually stopping you from finishing writing your dissertation? And she said, well, I was sexually assaulted in the field, and every time I open the dissertation files, I have flashbacks. And I, I think that was the first time that um, it really hit me how much these kinds of experiences can not only emotionally traumatize women, but also explicitly hold them back in their research. And so it, it, it switched for me from something that was uh, a conversation that we all had and that we all had some awareness of to something that was very real. So because of the very sensitive nature of this topic, I wanted to hear what all four co-authors had to say about the studies. So I invited them all on the show. So Chris, what do you think about uh, this particular study? Uh, what does one say except that it is shocking and appalling that it's as bad as it is? I, I don't think I can add any more insight than just to say that. Yeah, and people have criticized the sample as being overrepresentative, perhaps, because it's self-selected. And I certainly asked uh, uh, the, the women about that. And so, you know, hopefully, when you listen to the interview, uh, there'll be some insights there. Well, yeah, okay. But uh, people are reporting it, you know. I mean, maybe, maybe even if the, you move the numbers a little bit, that's still a lot of cases, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's an argument to, to be made that it's actually underrepresenting what's going on, so... So that's going to be our interview for this week. But first, let's talk about our interview from last week. <laughs> uh, last week, we touched on something controversial. We had Anthony and Graffia from Cornell on the show to talk about fracking and the environmental consequences. You probably noticed that he was against it. And he highlighted in particular the problem of fugitive methane emissions, which he argued undermine the climate change benefit of natural gas, because natural gas burns cleaner than coal, as they say. It is less carbon intensive than coal. But if they're leaking a lot of methane, well, then you have to recalculate. So subsequent to the show, I heard from a scientist with whom I've, you know, had dialogue in the past. His name is Ray Pierre Humbert. He's a geoscientist and climate expert at the University of Chicago. He disagrees with some of these conclusions about methane, or especially the context in which to understand the conclusions about methane. Basically, his point is that carbon dioxide is always worse for reasons he'll explain. So I wanted to have him on just to get a brief counterpoint. So let's let's go to that interview. Ray Pierre Humbert, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hi. Uh, it's good to talk to you. So just tell me, you, your perspective is that methane is just not as bad a greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide. And so basically, natural gas is going to be a benefit even with some methane leakage. Uh, into the atmosphere. Tell us, tell us why that is. So that's right. Uh, it really, it, it really comes down to the meaning of of what your criteria are for what makes a gas a bad greenhouse uh, gas. Uh, and uh, uh, the issue with methane versus carbon dioxide is that is that uh, methane dissipates. Methane breaks down in the atmosphere only after about uh, 12 years or so. So that any warming effect due to methane is, is temporary. As soon as you stop leaking methane into the atmosphere, that warming goes away. But the uh, warming due to carbon dioxide stays around for a thousand years or more. And so it, carbon dioxide gives you irreversible warming. 
and more or less carbon dioxide accumulates in the atmosphere like like poison like mercury in the in the flesh of a fish uh, whereas uh, methane is just a temporary harm uh, and so uh, and so you can afford to actually have a little bit of extra warming due to methane uh, if you're using it as a bridge fuel because the uh, a benefit you get from reducing the carbon dioxide emission stays with you forever, whereas the harm done by methane goes away more or less as soon as you stop using it. So can we come up with some kind of analogy? I mean, methane's like junk food or something where you eat it and it's it's bad for you, but you know, if you just eat it once um, versus a bad diet in long term, I don't know, something like that. Yeah, or or the the the, uh, the the kind of analogy I've used before for methane versus carbon dioxide is that uh, is like uh, uh, what methane does to the climate is like a, is like a hangover you, you get after one night of bad drinking, and if you just stop drinking, it goes away. Whereas carbon dioxide is like eating lead paint chips. Uh, you, 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 even if you stop, uh, it, it, uh, it, it, the harm doesn't go away. And, uh, and the more you eat the lead paint chips, the more the lead accumulates and uh, causes more and more harm. And it's essentially irreversible. Well, what about the idea that I, I think is out there, especially among people who are really worried about natural gas and methane leakage, that you know, even a... Sh- uh, methane, I mean, they don't say that methane lasts as long as carbon dioxide, but there's this idea or implication that you're having more methane and more carbon dioxide, and this is going to trigger processes, especially in the Arctic region, where even more methane and carbon dioxide is released, because if you warm things even more, then you get these feedbacks that you should worry about. What about, what about that concern? The important thing there is that those feedbacks, which are a very real concern, not just for methane release from permafrost, but also carbon dioxide release from permafrost, those feedbacks are not special to methane. In fact, they don't care what causes the warming. Uh, and so uh, to put it this way, if we were to replace all the coal-fired power in the United States with uh, natural gas, and even assuming a fairly high 5% leakage, uh, that, that would only give you uh, about uh, two one-hundredths of a degree of warming while you're still using the methane. Uh, and that would go away as soon as you stopped, uh, stopped using natural gas. On the other hand, uh, if you were to emit all that carbon dioxide from the coal, then uh, eventually you get more warming than you would have gotten from methane. And what's more, that warming is essentially permanent, stays around for thousands of years. So it's even more likely to trigger the releases of methane and carbon dioxide from permafrost and so forth uh, than, than the uh, uh, methane leakage would have been. So if you're really concerned about those feedbacks, actually you should be even more worried about keeping carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere than, uh, than you are worried about keeping uh, leakage from uh, fracking out of the atmosphere. Is it? Too simple to say that this is really about how much you worry about the short term, twenty years, versus how much you worry about the long term, a hundred or a thousand years. Well, it, it, uh, that's 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 part that's part of it. But the problem is that uh, all the problems that people invoke for uh, justifying a focus on the next twenty years uh, actually uh, come back to haunt you even more. Uh, in the 20 years after the next 20 years. And so, so it's not like this focus on the next 20 years uh, uh, solves the problem in, in any way. It makes the problem worse in, in a not too very long term. Okay, well, just to complete the brief for and against natural gas, uh, you know, it still puts some carbon in the uh, atmosphere, I mean, less than burning coal, but some. 
So what doesn't put any carbon in the atmosphere is nuclear power or solar power or wind power. So if natural gas displaces those kinds of energy, then it's still worse for the climate. Is that right? Well, so, so yes, I, part of my beef with, the, with uh, uh, the various claims out there that natural gas is worse than coal is that it, it, actually, uh, it actually distracts attention from what the, what the real problem is with cheap natural gas. And, and the real problem with cheap natural gas uh, is that it's, it's cheap, but it still emits some carbon, about, uh, about half as much as coal would for the same purposes, but it still emits carbon. So it's useful as a bridge fuel, but uh, if using it as a bridge fuel just drives out renewables and other carbon-free sources of energy, uh, it's really a bridge to nowhere. As Michael Levy puts it, it's a, it's a bridge from a coal-fired past to a coal-fired future. And so in order for it to be useful as a bridge fuel, it, it needs to be accompanied by policies that, say, tax the uh, natural gas extraction and use that to keep renewables going and other forms of carbon-free energy going. Is it fair to say that part of when people object to uh, natural gas development, it's a suspicion that that's not going to happen, that you're going to instead get a huge amount of natural gas development installed and it's going to be a new uh, industry with all of its own interests that doesn't want to change? That is a reasonable suspicion, but uh, even if that suspicion is true, if your alternative to doing that is just getting more coal, then, uh, then the coal is still worse than the natural gas. So let's say even if it takes you 20 years to convince people to put in those policies that will use natural gas as a true bridge fuel to phase, buy time to phase in renewables, uh, it's still better to be using the natural gas while you're putting those political things in place. If we don't put those political things in place to get rid of coal and eventually get on a track to renewables, we're all toast anyway. Okay. Well, got it. Well, listen, thank you for uh, for explaining all this to us. You know, it's complicated stuff and it's it's extremely important right now for our climate future. So, uh, Ray Pierre Humbert, thanks for being with us on Inquiring Minds. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. So this just underscores how complicated this whole issue really is, because, of course, Pierre Humbert makes a really great point. Uh, and it makes me think that, you know, really, ultimately, the we, we should be in favor of, of getting natural gas and, and using that instead of other sort of carbon-based fossil fuels. Yeah, I, I, st- I still think it's tough. You know, I think the last question that I asked, which is about, is natural gas undermining or can it undermine even cleaner? energy sources is really, really important. And it's one that probably motivates both Ingrafia and Pierre Humbert. Uh, It's one where they think they kind of agree that that could be worse if we're not having enough solar because of natural gas. And we thought natural gas was going to save us from coal, but natural gas is preventing us from getting as far into solar as we want. So, So there might be in some way a way of reconciling them on that basis. Yeah, or just throw it all out and forget fossil fuels and let's just go with solar and wind. Uh, Well, if we could just do it tomorrow. (laughs) But a lot of people would be very unhappy when they had no energy. That's true. So um, a little on a slightly lighter note, a study that just came out in Psych Science from a lab at King's College in London has actually caught my attention. And this is a study that found that, and here's just the punchline, the drawings of four-year-old children were predictive of intelligence at age 14. So this is a major problem for me because I've always sucked at drawing. 
Me too. Although I did at one point learn the whole perspective thing where if you draw a diagonal line like towards the back of the center of the thing and then you draw all the diagonals towards the back, then you can actually figure out how to make things look somewhat like real life. That was a big thing. Oh, well, see? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that, 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 maybe that correlates took, with intelligence. It took artists too. like until 1300 to figure that out or something. So. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so here's the nitty gritty of the study. Um, so at age four, kids were asked by their parents to draw a picture of a child. And these drawings were then scored for accuracy. Things like, did the figure in the drawing have two arms and two legs, two eyes, you know, a nose and a mouth, things like that. So note that the scoring of the drawing had nothing to do with artistic skill. So it wasn't like how creative was the drawing, you know, did it have like big purple hair or something like that. Rather, it was simply about whether the child recognizes the salient features of a human figure. So the authors take great pain to point out that they're not testing for creativity here. Um, they're, a- they're testing for an accurate representation. And in fact, they feel that this is a good sign of intelligence. And this test dates back to the 1920s. So these four-year-olds were also tested for general intelligence. Uh, we call, psychologists call this G, uh, a measure of intelligence that, you know, incorporates a number of different tests, you know, uh, nonverbal and verbal tests alike. Then those same kids were given intelligent tests when they were 14. And now, first of all, that's a long time to wait for data. So I really hope this wasn't anyone's dissertation. <laughs> um, but the researchers found that the scores on the drawing test at age four correlated moderately well with the intelligent tests at age 14. In fact, the drawing score was just as good as the G score at four in predicting the G score at 14. And so if you stop and think about it, that's kind of amazing. You know, a figure drawing, it takes five minutes, it takes a paper and a pencil, and that's it. And it's just as good at predicting intelligence a decade later as a whole battery of tests that have taken psychologists a long time to figure out. Yeah, but and and I don't want to be the person who does this, but watch as I do it. But like, you know, the, the person, I don't want to be the person who says your test is like not measuring what you think it is because the people who say that usually don't know what they're talking about. On the other hand, you know, when I hear that it's not about drawing ability, it's just about representing the person and getting all the parts right, I do have to wonder to myself, uh, are they finding the correlation because they're measuring the same thing? <laughs> I mean, you know, like they're know how to, they know what the parts of a person are because they're intelligent. Yeah, but that's what's kind of amazing is that this simple paper and pencil test can actually tell you whether a child is intelligent, right? I mean, I think that's what's really amazing. Is it? <laughs> I don't know. They're four. They're four, and they know two arms, two legs, two eyes, nose, and a mouth. I'm surprised. Yeah. Well, first, I'm surprised that some four-year-olds don't know that. <laughs> well, but I guess I don't know enough about child development to really say that either. But <laughs> if you look at these drawings, I would say yeah. like it's you know most of these four-year-olds don't know two arms, two okay. legs. Okay. I mean, they're 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 pretty okay. squiggly. Um, but the there's a second part of the study that I think is actually the most interesting. So the researchers cautioned that this correlation was only moderate. So you know, my ineptitude in drawing does not necessarily mean that I have a low IQ, although you know it could. But but here's here's the really interesting part. The researchers also found that drawings by identical twins were more similar to one another than drawings by fraternal or non-identical twins. So how you draw a child or a human figure at age four depends in part, at least on your genes. So although I'm kind of curious to know whether having an identical twin, someone who looks just like you and whom people often misidentify as you, might make you more likely to pay attention to the details of how people look. But, you know, that's that's a side note. But it would mean that identical twins would score higher on the drawing test than fraternal twins, and I'm not sure that that's what they found. What they did find, though, is that the heritability seems to explain much of the variation in drawing between these twin pairs. And in the author's own words, scores for a single drawing were as heritable as was G 
estimated from several different indicators. And that's kind of amazing. Yeah. Again, I just am still trying to get my head around what the test means. I, I'm not sure. I'm not surprised that any valid test uh, of something has identical twins doing different than fraternal twins doing because what they do on all, on so many things. Um, but still, still a little struggling with what it, what it means uh, to be able to draw this thing. I mean, I agree with you. I, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's good I observation, do wonder what it's, isn't it? It's, it isn't is. It? But what's, what's fascinating to me is that kind of, it, it blows away this notion that the, all these other not verbal and nonverbal tests, I mean, they literally have a whole battery of tests that they give kids at age four and none of them were as good, uh, or were better at predicting G at age 14 than this very simple test. Good stuff. Yeah. So I, I was good at the tantrum test at age four. So. <laughs> Okay. What about the marshmallow test? Yeah. I know the marshmallow test, but I never took it. But I think I would have stunk at it. But I'm not okay. sure. That's the one where you have to delay gratification. Which that's right. We'll we'll, we'll set a set a whole plate of marshmallows in front of you later yeah. and and see how that works out. Okay. So with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Kate Clancy, Robin Nelson, Julian Rutherford, and Katie Hind. So as an Inquiring Minds listener, if you like our banter about things like the last study, then you probably like uh, as well or will like The Great Courses. That's right. Here at the show, we're big fans of The Great Courses. They've been in production for over 20 years, and they offer engaging lectures by top professors who are experts in their fields. And we're especially interested in how science can explain human behavior, of course, what we talk about a lot. So we all recently listened to one of their courses called Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior by Duke social psychologist Mark Leary. Now, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist myself, so I have a pretty solid understanding of you know, what the data show about how the brain underlies our behavior. But what I loved about this course is the way that Professor Leary frames the information. So instead of just giving you, you know, a whole barrage of information, he focuses on the really interesting questions and makes even the quirkiest study relatable and interesting. Questions like, why do we blush? Why is prejudice so common? Why do we make mountains out of molehills? So, Chris, what was your favorite topic? Well, I think definitely the lecture on personality. Thank you, Professor Leary, for explaining that the nature-nurture debate is, quote, dead. I mean, it's not a dichotomy. It's not a debate. If you do claim it's, if you claim it's a dichotomy, you are now guilty of making a stupider. So stop. I really enjoyed that. I learned uh, that um, it's not my fault that I'm not extroverted. Okay? I couldn't <laughs> help it. <laughs> so I learned some good stuff in there. Yeah, the whole course is filled with great stuff. So for a limited time, The Great Courses is giving a special offer to our listeners. You can order Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior by Professor Mark Leary and get 80% off the original price. But this 80% savings is only available for a limited amount of time. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Kate, Julianne, Robin, and Katie, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Kate, I wanted to start off learning a little bit more about how the four of you came together. So tell me about your collaboration and why you decided to study sexual harassment in the field. Sure. Um, what happened was that, uh, you know, well, for one, sexual harassment and sexual assault are the kinds of things that uh, do unfortunately come up when women, when female scientists are actually talking to each other, right? We talk about what PIs to avoid, uh, which individuals to not go near during conferences, which field sites have good or bad reputations. And so I think there are a lot of ways in which 
This has been a con, you know, this has been part of the conversation of being a woman in science for a really long time. A couple of years ago, I was out giving a talk, a women in science talk at another campus, and I happened to meet up with an old friend, and she wasn't finishing up her dissertation, and I couldn't figure out why. Um, and so, you know, being kind of heartless and thinking I was doing her a good turn by being hard, I was like, what is actually stopping you from finishing writing your dissertation? And she said, well, I was sexually assaulted in the field. And every time I open the dissertation files, I have flashbacks. And I, I think that was the first time that um, it really hit me how much these kinds of experiences can not only emotionally traumatize women, but also explicitly hold them back in their research. And so it, it, it switched for me from something that was uh, a conversation that we all had and that we all had some awareness of to something that was very real. A friend in, in front of me who had actually been assaulted tried to report it you know, was pushed away at every turn when she tried to actually do something about it. And so she and eventually another colleague that uh, explained to me, uh, that told me stories of systemic sexual harassment that she re that she received at her field site. Um, eventually, these two people wrote pseudonymous accounts on my blog at Scientific American. After that time, I was invited to give a talk on the ethics of field site management. And at that point, I started to feel really out of my depth. Um, and I thought, there's just no way that I'm going to be able to be taken seriously <laughs> writing from the perspective of, even though I had these very powerful stories, um, you know, my colleagues are going to want some data. And uh, that's when I knew that I, you know, this is the kind of project that needs to be done with a team of really bright scientists. And so, of course, I called on Julian Rutherford, Robin Nelson, and Katie Hind. And of course, they were willing to step up and make this project the amazing project it's been. And so I think that from that moment on, it's been very much a collaboration between the four of us as we've really thought together and worked really hard together to think about um, what are the first steps that need to be done to raise awareness about this issue and to really address the fact that this is real for so many people. So I want to start actually with a definition of sexual harassment. Um, I think def sexual assault is more clear because it actually involves, you know, a physical contact. Uh, but oftentimes I hear from people that they don't, they didn't realize that they were sexually harassing someone, for example, when they made a, a, a sexually explicit comment. They thought they were just having a good joke uh, or just, you know, being collegial. And of course, when we study something, we need a very good definition. So let me ask you, Julianne, what is your definition of sexual harassment? For the purposes of the paper, we drew from uh, literature and established definitions um, from the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, about what what rises to the level of harassment, and and I I, I want to you know echo what you're saying that I I think that there is um, there is confusion even when there are definitions um, uh, about what rises to the level of harassment and even assault, and so for the purposes of the survey. We ask questions about sexualized comments, jokes, sexual jokes, jokes about um, sort of gender differences in behavior and cognition, comments about appearance, comments about physical beauty, a range of comments that center comments and jokes and stories that center upon uh, appearance and um, gender and sexual behavior. So it's not just necessarily an off-color joke. Um, there is a kind of a, a specific a specific core to that joke having something to do with gender roles, sexual behavior, appearance. 
Um, and, and I'd also say that, um, assault is, uh, in some ways it would seem as though it were clear cut. Um, but often, uh, in recent discussions, um, and critiques of discussions of sexual assault, say on campuses, many people have argued that only, um, forcible rape counts as a sexual assault. And indeed, there are um, kind of a variety of of um, legal uh, languages and precedents that that broaden that definition to um, unwanted sexual contact. So, it, when we're talking about assault, we are talking about people who have been raped by that um, sort of classic definition of assault. But it's a, it's a wider wider range of physical contact that is all unwanted by the target, um, contact that the target feels unable um, to indicate their unwillingness to be contacted uh, in that way, um, so that there's uh, that sense of imbalance and unwanted behavior being directed at that person. So I'm going to I'm going to try to pin this down a little bit more. Let's let's say that um someone touches me in an area of my body that I feel is private. So breasts, you know, bum, whatever. Uh that to me is clearly it's unwanted. That that sounds to me like it would be a clear sexual assault. But what if they just rub my back? How would you categorize that? So if I can just jump in here for a second and say um this is this is getting pretty far afield of the point of the paper. Okay. And the point of the paper is not to parse these things. We actually kept to legal definitions. So we talked to the United, you know, we worked with um, the definition from the United States Equal Employment Opportunity Commission uh, in order to determine the definition of sexual harassment. And then the definition of sexual assault, we tried to use the best one we could from uh, from given legal definitions, which are unwanted physical contact. It does not have to be of a sexual nature necessarily. But again, that's very, very far beyond the point of this paper. Okay, well, that's actually really good to know, because I think that is an important idea that, you know, people, people who are filling out these surveys, the point is, is that it's what the person feels who who is victimized, um, whether they're being harassed or or assaulted. It's how they feel about it, not how the perpetrator feels about it, uh, that we're talking about here. Is that correct? Um. This is Katie. Can I can I jump in here to answer that? Because um, I think that's a, an exactly um, right on point. And that is that it's really about the impact of the action or the comment or the contact, not the intent uh, necessarily. And so it's really shifting from an attitude of, uh, well, the intent was benign when many times the case is that it's not benign, but they fall back on a benign explanation when it's rejected or, um, or when somebody has a problem with it. And so it's really about focusing on how, uh, the target or the bystander interprets or experiences these things. And so that's another key thing is that it's that the, that the victims of this situation are not merely the targets, but also bystanders that are made to feel uncomfortable or made to feel powerless to report or intervene. Okay, great. So if your definition then is from the perspective of the victim, I'd like to hear a little bit more about some of the other study methods. So for example, how were your subjects recruited? What were they asked? And, you know, what, how, how did you actually collect your data? So, so perhaps Katie, you could jump in and answer that. So we uh, put together a survey 
that had several sections, uh, general demographic info about the participants, um, their experiences in the field. And this was really, I think, quite compelling is that among our respondents, the average number of field sites that they had reported working at was three, but the median was four or more. So um, half of our sample had worked at four or more different field sites. Uh, so we ended up getting quite a diversity of experiences in the field um, among our respondents. Uh, they came from uh, dozens of nations and they came from 30 different disciplines that are characterized by conducting field work across the social sciences, life sciences, and physical sciences. So we asked information about who was responding to our survey, the first third. We then asked them um, about you know, general attributes of the field sites at which they had worked, how many of them had had um, a female director versus a male director. And then we, we really uh, asked them some specific questions such as, um, you know, at the most recent or most notable field site at which you worked, um, what was the frequency with which people um, made inappropriate comments? And we, and we left the, the perception of inappropriate to the respondent, right? Did, you know, what was the frequency that you felt was inappropriate? And that was actually a free open answer kind of question, which we then categorized into never, rarely, regularly, and frequently. Um, which is all in the paper. Um, and then we asked them specifically, have you ever experienced uh, sexual harassment? We didn't say sexual harassment. We said, have you ever uh, experienced inappropriate sexual comments, jokes about cognitive uh, sex differences, about the cognitive abilities of men or women, uh, or other comments that you felt were inappropriate? If you had experienced this, what, what time point in your career did you experience this? And who was the, the perpetrator in terms of, of relative to your position? Were they um, a peer? Were they a local unaffiliated with the field site? Were they someone up the hierarchy from you? Or were they somebody down the hierarchy from you? Uh, and then uh, the last part we asked about um, sexual assault. Have you ever um, been uh, the target of unwanted physical contact um, that you uh, did not want or could not say you did not want because of perceived dangers or, or things like that. Then the last little section was, were you aware of mechanisms to report these experiences? Did you report them? And how satisfied were you by the outcome of that reporting? So we, we put together this survey and had it approved by the uh, Institutional Review Boards for Human Subjects Research. And we put it together as an online survey. And at the opening portal of this online survey, we explained the, you know, the kinds of questions that were going to be asked um, for very ethical reasons, which is that being asked about experiences with sexual harassment or sexual assault can be very dangerously triggering. You know, it is in many ways unethical to spring such a challenging question on people that have experienced these things. And then we sent this survey out uh, through a variety of mechanisms, through Twitter, through Facebook, through email, through um, professional organization sites, uh, asking uh, through word of mouth, really trying to seed the survey into a variety of different disciplines that we knew were characterized by fieldwork among biologists, archaeologists, uh, anthropologists, zoologists, fisheries, wildlife, um, just you name it. And 
the early presentation of the survey uh, was covered in media outlets. And uh, for example, uh, Science put a link to our survey in, in their online portal that featured an article. And so we had, um, basically, we sent it out into the world and, uh, and we got lots of people uh, responding to it quite quickly. I also um, really emphasized among the people that I contacted, and I, I know that my co-authors did as well, that, you know, if you have good experiences, please answer the survey because we're trying to understand about the diversity of experiences that people are having in the field. And we want respondents that had all kinds of, of experiences. Um, and, and Julian and, and Kate both hosted it on their, their professional blogs. So Robin, tell me a little bit about the sample. How many people did you include in this particular paper? What was the demographic breakdown in terms of men and women and so on? Interestingly, and this has gotten a, a, a bit of a sad chuckle from uh, many people who've looked at the paper, our final sample size was 666 people. Um, and the vast majority of the sample were women. So about 78% almost of the sample were women, uh, with the rest being men and the majority of the participants self-identified as heterosexual. The majority of the participants self-identified in terms of ethnicity as being Caucasian or white. Uh, that actually matches what we know in terms of demographics uh, in the field sciences pretty well. Uh, the vast majority of the respondents were also from the United States and uh, self-identified as undergraduate, graduate students, postdoctoral scholars, uh, non-tenure track faculty, tenure track faculty. And then, you know, as we kind of go up in the hierarchy, uh, we have slightly less. Um, and so we were binned, we binned our respondents into two groups so that we could understand issues of hierarchy. And so we had, uh, trainees, uh, students and postdocs, um, and they, we, they were about 386 out of our 666 respondents. Um, and faculty were 179 out of the 666 or about 27% of our respondents. And so, you know, we had, quite a large sample size um, for such a sensitive topic. And one of the issues uh, with, you know, one of the limitations that we speak about quite clearly in our paper is that the way that you have to sample with these kinds of studies is, uh, I'll say, very carefully. So we sent out our survey via social media, um, and we sent it out through uh, social media contacts for professional organizations. And, um, and, some folks were, you know, we, we received information from some folks who said, um, I would love to do your survey, but I can't do your survey because it would trigger me in having to think about this traumatic experience that I had in the field. Um, and, you know, on the other side, uh, some folks have argued, well, you could have maybe oversampled people who are unhappy in the field. And so we could have oversampled in either direction. And so we're actually quite comfortable with the way we sampled. And this is the way that you have to undertake these kinds of surveys about sensitive topics. And so we actually get a quite, quite a robust sample size in the end. And, uh, it, it's, uh, it's troubling because our findings with that sample size are warrant much more discussion about how we handle sexual harassment in the field. 
So it's very encouraging to hear that the demographics of your your sample and the demographics uh, of field people who work in the field are, have, have quite a bit of overlap, that those two distributions look pretty similar. Uh, that's encouraging to me as a scientist uh, in terms of interpreting your results. So, Kate, why don't you uh, start out with giving me an overview of what you found? So what we found in this uh, in this first paper when we were looking at the survey results are that um, you know, women experience harassment at a much higher rate than men, uh, about, you know, around 70% of women from our sample reported experiencing harassment and about 40% of men. Also, in terms of the bystander effect, I think it was really important earlier when Katie was distinguishing different kinds of people that can be influenced by by a hostile climate in a field site that you can have the actual targets for harassment and assault, but also bystanders. So there can be a pretty negative effect of observing this happen to someone you know, um, not just, you know, it actually happening directly to you, which means that the effects of this are potentially even greater in some ways than those are, that are directly reporting being targeted. Let me just stop you right there. 70% of women and 40% of men, that's mind boggling. Yeah. And, su- and not surprising to us, I will say. It's, it's uh, sad, infuriating, but maybe not that surprising because every single researcher we've spoken to, our friends, our colleagues, people we went to graduate school with, people we've met since graduate school, everybody knows a story like this. Wow. You know, and it doesn't mean we haven't, we, the four of us have had amazing field experiences and we know other people who have had fantastic field experiences, but we also have heard these stories anecdotally. And they're also quite, these findings, these percentages of respondents that are, are reporting sexual harassment are very consistent with uh, different kinds of surveys and, and um, studies of this in other other professional settings. So in, you know, business or medicine, you, you get very, very high rates of sexual harassment. Okay, so clearly this is a major issue, as we've established now. Um, let's delve into the data a little bit. Uh, and Kate, why don't you continue by telling me a little bit about um, the sources of the comments and whether they differ in terms of how men and women experience who it is that makes these unwanted comments and, uh, and, and gestures, perhaps. Yes, because I, I think this is, um, in some ways... Well, I mean, unfortunately, it feels like every data point in this paper is kind of devastating. But um, this one to me really brings home um, the the major gender differences in our study. So not only do women experience much greater uh, experience sexual harassment at a much greater rate and experience sexual assault at a much greater rate, more than 20 percent of our respondents um, said that of our female respondents said they experienced sexual hara- uh, sexual assault. But the other thing that's interesting is the. Um, is who is perpetrating this. And so for the most part, the majority of the perpetrators, when the target is a woman, tended to be someone superior to her in the hierarchy. And the majority of the time, when men were the targets, the perpetrators were peers. What's really interesting about that is that there is a whole literature on uh, sort of the directionality of sexual harassment. And there is much greater psychological harm when it's a vertical abuse, meaning coming from someone higher up in the hierarchy. And so not only are women experiencing harassment and assault in greater numbers than men, but the actual nature of the assault potentially can cause greater psychological harm. So is let me ask you, though, is this because there are more men in superior positions? So, in, you know, in some ways, you're if you're a man, you're more likely to be in contact with a peer than with a superior compared to if you're a woman. Well, we didn't ask whether the perpetrators were themselves men or women. 
Um, and just going off of the, you know, we, we also did 26 interviews, um, that we're going to be writing a second paper out of. And, you know, at least from those interviews, I can comfortably say that there are perpetrators that are both male and female here. And so it's not just, I mean, I think that that's a great point to raise, but I don't think it's just about, um, the gender of who's actually in charge. It act, but it does have to do a lot with the kind of climate that the person in charge chooses to create. And can I, can I actually augment that just slightly? And that's that overwhelmingly for both men and women respondents in our survey, they experienced harassment or assault when they were themselves trainees. So in that sense, both men and women um, were trainees, both had individuals that were superior and inferior to them in the hierarchy. Um, and it was during those stages that, that men reported experiencing this from peers and women ex- experiencing this to a much greater extent from individuals up the hierarchy. So this brings me to a question uh, about the actual nature of the work. So is this the case? Do you think this would be the case if we were talking about scientists at the bench and in other kinds of environments? Or is this specific to field work? I think that, you know, we focused on field work for um, a very specific reason. And, and that is, uh, in so many fields of science, going out into the world, going out into the field and collecting the data, learning how to do that, learning how to, um, you know, manage a site, gain the skills that you need to collect the data in the field and the social skills you need are critically important to establishing a successful career. So many of our graduate uh, programs and even some undergraduate programs in these fields have a field work requirement. Um, many job postings uh, state that active field work is required um, to be a competitive candidate. So we looked at this particular workplace as being very important for establishing um, both the foundations or sort of educational foundation, but also the backbone of a successful career. Um, so that was, that's why we targeted, uh, field work. Um, our data can't speak to specific environments within, um, the lab or the office, but there are some aspects of field work that I think contribute to these, um, kinds of behaviors. And that is, there's often a certain amount of confusion about who is in charge. And in that sense, I mean, some field sites are run by um, investigators from multiple universities and um, research institutions. There might be uh, a field school where you have students from many different universities. So sort of the, the, the overseeing institution may not be clear to any individual um, participant at any stage in their training or in the hierarchy. Um, so that, that, that confusion contributes to, I think, a, a loosening of, of boundaries. And then there's also some practical considerations in that you are often so far from your home institution, from your home, from your um, social network, from your professional network, that again, making contact with people who could help you who could reflect back, who could help get you the help uh, that you needed are very far removed. And in some ways, in some cases, there may not be a phone. There may not be Wi-Fi, so you can't get on your computer and email back to your home institution. In many ways, in, in both you know, truly logistical ways and then just sort of social ways, you can feel very isolated from the channels you would want to draw on for support. So I, I think 
our work are the numbers that we talk about are, are very consistent. Um, as Katie said, with other studies of sexual harassment and assault. But I think that there are some special um, characteristics of field sites and field um, hierarchies that make it particularly uh, um, difficult to sort out. And you're also spending a lot of time with your colleagues outside of just your normal nine to five day, I imagine, in these kinds of environments, you know, so we'd probably see uh, similar behaviors in, you know, when people go out and and shoot a film for three months or, you know, go and do a musical theater show or, you know, even even it's in some ways it's the genesis of the entire reality TV industry where you send a bunch of people on an island and they behave in ways in which they normally wouldn't behave uh, necessarily making it you know, for questionable television. Um, do you feel that there's a part of that as well, where, the, you know, people don't, people work much longer hours, they don't have anywhere to escape. Uh, and so they tend to make worse decisions? Absolutely. Um, one of the, uh, you know, the phrases that, that uh, we've heard for, uh, you know, for years, it didn't come up just in this study, but we definitely um, heard it repeated was this idea of what happens in the field stays in the field. There, that the environment is incredibly intense. The work is incredibly hard, physically challenging, mentally challenging, emotionally challenging, um, particularly when you are early in your career and, um, you are in the process of developing the, um, the professional skills and the coping skills for such an intense environment. So it, it serves as a crucible, as I, I think you, highlighted that very well for for people behaving in ways that they they might not otherwise. So you've established pretty clearly that this is a problem uh, and that, you know, also from other work that people who do more field work are more productive and, and generate more papers and therefore are able to secure more grants and have, you know, a better career. So have you come up with any advice for either PIs who know they have to take their trainees into the field uh, or institutions uh, that, that in which this, this, this is a part of their um, university research? This is Katie, um, and I'll take the first stab at this, um, but I think, I think everybody could um, co- productively contribute to the answer. Um, we put this paper out there as a start of a conversation, because it's really solutions are going to be affected by our community coming together, agreeing that that this is um, a problem, that these aren't just occasional isolated incidences or uh, the rare bad apple, but but something that we need to systematically address with culture change. And and Eleanor Ostrom, uh, the first woman to win the Nobel Prize for Economics, did a lot of research showing that uh, solutions are oftentimes uh, most effective when they're community generated by people talking together and and discussing it. There's a lot of variation from field site to field site. Uh, Their structure, their goals, uh, the presence of of teams from multiple institutions, multiple countries, um, the countries in which they're located have very different uh, cultures and there's lots of diversity. And and so uh, there's not necessarily going to be uh, a necessarily checklist of policies that can be one size fits all. Rather, it's an opportunity for our community to come together and say, how do we promote inclusivity at our field sites and emphasize a culture in which all people are treated with dignity? And that's, that's really where we want it to, where we want the conversation to start. 
So Robin, let me ask you a question that um, kind of nags at me and, you know, is one that I, I worry about a little bit. And that is that, you know, in this incredibly competitive environment of science now where grant funding is is so um, sought after and, and competitive, uh, do you worry that maybe if, th- if this kind of um, – if these conversations come to light uh, time and time again, that a PI might choose not to take on a female trainee in, in fear of their career being tarnished, uh, you know, as a result of something that happens in the field? I think that could happen. Um, but I think that it's, that would be harder and harder. The demographics in many field sciences are changing. There are more and more women going into graduate school. And somehow we're kind of losing these women by the time we get to tenure track jobs and tenured positions. So I think the demographics are there for us to remain uh, a very strong voice in the field. I also think that 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 worry can be defeating because, you know, women are already here. We're already here. We're already parts of labs. We're already parts of research groups. We're already making our voices known in all kinds of field sciences. And so you can choose not to bring any women. You will have very few people at your field site and you will be losing quality scientists. And I think that most of the researchers that we know feel that way. The response that we've gotten to this paper has been overwhelmingly positive. There have been people who've critiqued it and uh, don't really want to hear the findings, but they're outliers. Um, we know some people have message, sent us private, private messages, excuse me, saying that our paper is going to be part of their journal club reading in the fall. And so I think that most of the researchers who've read the paper, or many of the researchers, I'll say, who've read the paper that we've heard from have been extremely supportive and know that we need to think about systemic cultural change in the sciences and that simply not taking women isn't really an option. It's not a viable option. And I just want to underline the fact that, as we mentioned earlier, 40% of men are reporting unwanted, right. uh, you know, comments and, and contact, etc. So Julian, let me ask you about the experience of the people who participated in your study. If they did experience uh, sexual harassment or unwanted contact, did they know then what their options were in terms of, you know, how to remove themselves from the situation or make it better? I think that was that was one of the um, really striking findings of the study in that um, the the great majority of our respondents were unaware of um, a code of conduct or a sexual harassment policy that laid out what appropriate behavior was and then what to do if they encountered that inappropriate behavior. So we found that less than 20 percent of our respondents were aware of a mechanism to report. So we had few people who encountered a code of conduct or a sexual harassment policy and few people who, following up on that, knew of any way to contact somebody to um, address the situation. Um, and we did have some respondents who did report harassment and assault through some channel either one that they were officially aware of or one they sought out themselves. And sadly, very few people who followed that um, were satisfied with the outcome. So only 19% of the respondents who reported the assault, and that's a small 
fraction of the people who experienced it were satisfied by any kind of, of, of the outcome. And I think in some ways this speaks to, that's a, those are very sobering numbers, but I think it also speaks to some, um, you know, potential for some concrete action. And in fact, we have colleagues who were, um, you know, who were aware of this study or in the early stages and took it upon themselves to craft policies with very explicit, explicit codes for acceptable behavior in the sort of community spirit of dignity. And also included the contact information of many people they could reach out to, including the site director. But if they weren't comfortable doing that, there were other people uh, with contact information, both back at the home institution and in the country where they were working. Um, and, and I think we're going to see more and more of that, but, but absolutely one of the pieces that seemed to be missing, um, in the experience of our respondents was this, um, sort of, uh, avenue for having concerns addressed on the ground when it happened in a timely and, and respectful manner. And I, I think in some ways that really speaks to the power that the, the principal investigators, the site managers, um, the, 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 the project managers have to change the conversation and change the culture by saying, these kinds of behaviors are not acceptable. And if they do occur, we will take action and we will look out for you. We are here to protect your interests. Um, and I think that's very, I think that's a very powerful way forward from the data we present. So, Kate, this was, in some ways, uh, you started it. <laughs> so I want to ask you now, where are you taking this? What are your next steps? And, and what do you hope uh, will be the positive change that this kind of work will lead to um, in, in terms of field work? The next step for us is we have another paper to write. Uh, we have, like I said, those 26 interviews. We've done, um, we've coded them and done a thematic analysis, and it's a matter of writing up those results. Uh, and I think that that's going to provide additional context to these data. And I, I think, um, again, I think what Katie said before is, is pretty powerful that the first step here is agreeing that there's a problem. Uh, and then this is, um, once you could do that, and once you have a paper like this, you know, though, as it's almost frustrating to say that because that's alongside plenty of other papers and plenty of other anecdotes that should have been enough for people to say this is a problem, right? But once you have that, you can start to work on community-generated responses. And and uh, I think that there's really a multi-level approach here um, that is not necessarily going to be spearheaded by any one of us. That's not really our role here. Our role here is to start the conversation um, and then see where our colleagues take it. And what's exciting to me about that is that um, I think a lot of people were really worried. They were worried about us professionally because all four of us are untenured women and uh, worried about our professional stature when we dared to do this research and publish these results. But I have really only noticed the opposite in terms of the support that we've had from our entire scientific community. That yes, of course, there are people who are going to push us on our results or our methods or things like that. But overwhelmingly, scientists want to do better. And I think they know they can do better. And so the next steps are figuring out how we're going to do that in our departments, how we're going to make our university policies ones that are more explicitly applied to field sites. They already are supposed to apply to field sites, but people don't always realize that. Working on better training opportunities, 
just even helping confront some of the subtle biases and subtle behaviors that we tend to have when we interact with people of different genders. Um, and, and so I think that work is already starting, like, you know, like has already been said about the fact that, uh, we are now required reading across many, many departments in this country. And, uh, I think that's a great first step. And hopefully this serves as a beacon to other situations in which sexual harassment is a problem. So, you know, not only other departments within the university, but also in the tech world, and even hopefully in the military, where we know this is also a huge problem. So, Katie, Julianne, Robin, and Kate, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. And thank you for doing this important work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, you know, I looked up their study. I read a lot of it. And one thing that I found striking, you know, this this thing that men report sexual harassment in the field also, but yeah. and in less numbers from a different place. It's a horizontal power relationship and not a vertical one. Uh, and I thought that, I mean, I guess that's that's kind of telling. Yeah, I mean, and we talked about that. If 40% is, is kind of a staggering number, even if you didn't take women into account at all. If someone reported a study that showed 40% of men report, you know, sexual harassment or assault in the field, that would make headlines. Uh, you know, that's kind of amazing. But you're exactly right that, that the power differential is one thing that really underscores this, this gender problem in that for women, it's vertical and for men, it's horizontal. So in some ways, you could argue that women not only experience it more frequently, but also it's more damaging. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that. But, uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate them including both uh, so that we can compare both. But of course, you know, I don't, I don't, and both are bad. Um, but it does look like for women, it's this uniquely bad. Thing that involves power as well, but uh, you know, but both are bad. And, and as I as I said, you know, it's it's just it, it would still make headlines even if it was just talking about men. Yeah. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, and you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And I just want to give a shout out to our listeners. Thanks very much for being with us. We are all, we've been around for almost a year, uh, and especially I enjoy meeting our listeners, and I just recently met one Jeffrey Paris, who teaches environmental ethics at the University of San Francisco. So shout out to you. Thanks so much for being a dedicated listener. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing the world's top professors to your fingertips. They have over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and much more. And these courses are available for digital download and streaming or on DVD and CD. And best of all, you can listen uh, to or watch them at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. For a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of one of these courses, which is Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior by Professor Mark Leary. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer, Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.